is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this week's podcast, we're talking XJ40s with Paul Keating from the XJ40 Register and Richard West describes what it takes to be a really good manager for a top flight driver. JECpodcast.com Hello, welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Hope you keep him well. Wayne Scott here with you as here in England, we're easing out of lockdown and looking forward to the festive season ahead. And I hope you're keeping safe and well as you hopefully have done for the past 34 weeks of this podcast. It's incredible that we've done that many weeks at one after another and it's been great to have you along with us listening and sharing the passion for Jaguar around the world. And it's a passion that covers all sorts of models as well, from the fantastically finished E-types and XK restorations that we've covered over the past few weeks, right up to and including this week's podcast, where we're going to be talking about arguably one of the most affordable routes into Jaguar ownership there is, the Jaguar XJ40. It's a model very close to my heart, a car that I've owned myself and loved, and I know that there's a new wave of Jaguar owners who are extremely passionate about the XJ40 shape XJ6s. We'll talk to one of those members later on in this show, Paul Keating, who has done a phenomenal job at putting together a massive register tracking all of the cars, their whereabouts, their lives, who own them, and sharing that information with the world via social media. We'll find out more from Paul a little bit later on in this podcast. Also, big news to share with you, if you hadn't seen this already, that the Jaguar Enthusiast Club is contributing £7.2 billion to the UK economy. It's true. Well, OK, we're not doing it on our own, but we are part of a wider classic car community. And the results of the 2020 National Historic Vehicle Survey have been announced by the Federation of British Historic Vehicle Clubs. The summary results were revealed during the recent virtual NEC Classic Motor Show, and there's some amazing headline facts behind it, all of which deliver some really good news for the classic car world. The contribution to the UK economy is up from £5.5 billion in 2016 to £7.2 billion. That is more than the equestrian world and it's more than the UK fisheries industry. That's what the historic vehicle community are putting back into this country. And what's even more amazing is that money, that revenue is generated from less than 0.2% of the total number of miles driven on the UK roads in a single year. It's a tiny mileage and it's based around recreational and heritage use as you'd expect. There are other good signs as well. Because of the rolling definition of what a classic car is, 500,000 more classic cars have been added to the figures. That's an incredible number. And 51% of those classic cars are worth less than £10,000 which hopefully suggests that our hobby, our pastime, our community is becoming easier to access for more and more people. What's really encouraging from a business point of view is that there are now over 4,000 businesses employing over 34,000 people working on classic cars or historic vehicles of some kind, and over a third of those have taken on or are considering taking on an apprentice to ensure that the skills that are needed to keep our cars on the road are there for generations to come. Now, the recent announcement of the 2030 ban on new vehicles, 
that are powered by internal combustion engines might have worried some in the UK classic car scene, but looking at these figures, it would seem that the historic vehicle community is in rude health indeed, and that with those kind of numbers and that kind of growth, the people in power would do well not to ignore us or curtail our freedoms. You can read the full article on the news pages at jec.org.uk right now. And we are promised from the Federation of British Historic Vehicle Clubs who have carried out that survey, of which the Jaguar Enthusiast Club is a member, some more details and results from that study to come in the next few weeks. We'll post it all on JEC org.uk where of course you can keep up to date with all sorts of other news from within the jaguar enthusiast club world as well including the latest news on what you can expect from the summer jaguar festival in may 2021 and also of course how you can contribute to our nominated charity the haemophilia society and win yourself a jaguar xk for just two pounds it's all online at jc.org.uk Next, though, more Memories of Motorsport with Richard West. Memories of Motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. More memories now from a lifetime in motorsport with Richard West. Well, on this week's podcast, we're going to take a look behind the scenes of the life of your average racing driver. Because, of course, behind the scenes, there are many people pulling strings in a motorsport team. And one of those people pulling strings is very rarely seen but it is of the utmost importance uh, richard tell us about drivers managers they're there they're very important but we rarely get to see them do we no wayne i, I think that's very true i mean if you go back uh, into the 60s and the 70s driver managers were a very rare thing you didn't see them very often in fact i don't think in many cases they really existed most drivers did their own deals i remember talking to the great innis island once and I said, you know, have you ever used a manager? He said, apart from my bank manager, no. Um, but with the onset of commercial uh, interests in the sport from really the 80s onwards, drivers began to realize that they had um, more of a workload. And I, and, I, and I don't want to sound as if, you know, poor chaps, they have to work hard. The reality is the team started to have greater commercial demands upon it. Therefore, not only did the driver have to attend the engineering briefings and do what they do best, which is practice, qualify, and race to the best of their abilities, but more and more commercial pressures came upon them. And, and IMG, were one of the great Mark McCormack's businesses, started to put together a structure. And there were some uh, really, really Tim Wright, Julian Jacoby, people like that, who had worked in the world of tennis and golf. And suddenly, as the motor racing dollars increased, Mark McCormack saw an opportunity to put his management skills into play with the drivers. And one of the great managers is a guy by the name of Julian Jacoby, somebody I've known very well over the last 30 years. Julian has managed the likes of Alan Prost, Ayrton Senna. He was behind Prost Grand Prix and also Dario Franchitti, to name but a few. And the role of those individuals, sorry, this is quite a long answer to your question, but the role of those individuals is to really enable the driver to have the maximum focus on what they do best, and that is to qualify race and perform to the very best of their abilities. Also, and again, this is controversial sometimes, they are there to maximise the driver's earnings. And in much the same way as your pension fund manager or your you know, finance manager is there to give you the best return on investment, 
drivers like footballers, like tennis players, like golfers have a limited competitive lifespan. And if they are very good and the best of the best, then clearly the manager's job is to maximise their commercial interest whilst recognising the commitments of the teams in a given time span. So it's an all-encompassing job, but really a driver. My mother used to say that old money was always silent. And in fact, a, a manager's role is silent. You know, it's not a position where they should be seen in a high-profile role. They should be behind the scenes doing the best by their driver. And that's how they earn their fees and their commissions, by doing a very good job for the individual that they represent. And I guess it's indicative of the sheer volume of numbers that are involved in a transfer of a driver from one team to another or with sponsorship deals. We're talking big, big money now, even not just about Formula One, even in some of the lower levels when they're doing deals with sponsors, there's some big sums being discussed, isn't there? There is, but there's also another side to it. You know, the money is obviously one element of it, and it's a way of earning good money, both for the driver and the management company or the individual manager. But the reality is also, it's balancing the driver's time and making sure that they are, I don't know how to really describe it, not disturbed by certain commercial elements while they're doing what they're paid to do. And you're right, I mean, even in touring car racing, different levels of sports car racing, rallying. It's become commonplace. And Jackie Stewart, actually, so Jackie Stewart has often said, there is a great place for a great manager and also a great sports psychologist behind every driver because, and rider. Because once you start to take away those pressures, you allow that individual to concentrate fully. And, and the one thing I remember particularly with, with Edson Senna and Michael Schumacher in my time working with them, was that they never allowed the commercial elements to cloud what they were doing in terms of their performance on track. And Ayrton particularly was very, very good at separating it. You know, you would never be able to say to him on a race weekend, oh, I've got somebody to meet you because he's got a great commercial deal. He would say, no, speak to Julian, please. Leave that until next week when the weekend is over. And you really, as a good manager, you have to you have to dial into the individual concern and understand their strengths and weaknesses and understand when you can talk to them about commercial matters and when you can't. And also sometimes they will come to you and they will say, look, you know, long term, I'm thinking of going in this direction or I'm thinking of staying where I am. What do you think? And it's at that point when the relationship starts to develop very, very personally and you have conversations with your rider, your driver, whatever, and you, you try to look longer term and you do try and look past the commercial elements. You try and look at what is right for that individual and what setting is best for them and where you think the best performances will come from. And if the performances come, then, of course, the commercial benefits come as a result of that. Well, of course, you yourself are a manager currently for a up and coming new talent in British Superbikes, Ollie Warren. What mm. to you, Richard, makes a good manager there are a hell of a lot in the sport uh, but some sort of reach these higher echelons of almost as legendary status in the industry as the drivers themselves so what do you think makes a good manager and what do you strive to do when you're managing someone it's a difficult one because obviously you know here i am 60 plus and here i'm with a 20 plus year old uh, rider and he, he, first of all you have to try and understand the world in which they they live and they operate because it's totally different to the world in which I live and operate, you know, my private life. There's also this thing that you, you have to try and take a very unbiased view on things. 
Ollie and I have had conversations already about certain things to do with his career and his fashion brand where I've actually said to him, no, let, let's not do that now. Let's wait. Let's concentrate on the specific plan that we've got over the next three to five years. And I often remember seeing um, Willie Weber, who was with um, Michael Schumacher and Julian, who I've talked about already, who was with Prost and Senna. And they would spend a lot of personal time together, particularly on flights. You would see them sat together and they would go through. I remember seeing Ayrton and Julian once spending about four hours discussing what color wrist strap went with a particular tag or a watch. And I, I said to Ayrton afterwards, I said, couldn't you make your mind up? He said, it's not about me making my mind up. It's taking Julian's views on what is most relevant to the current marketplace. So you, you try and become that stabilizing head on that youth and enthusiasm without restricting it. And it, it's sometimes a difficult pass and a part to play because you, you find yourself going back to, oh, when I was that age, what would I have done? Well, that's not the case anymore. You have to try and put your head in their space and at the same time you then have to try and explain to them why you as an older person would make that decision and think about those steps going forward because it's a symbiotic relationship big word i know but really it, it, it's about developing a relationship it's almost a family relationship and i saw that with julian and ayrton and the terrible shock that it had you know when when ayrton lost his life but interestingly then you go the entire opposite to the spectrum and i must bring this in gerhard berger for example hugely successful career mclaren driver ferrari driver head of bmw motorsport the man who took williams to le mans with the um, open top sports car and won le mans for bmw gerhard's never had a manager in his life completely managed all of his own affairs so i think also a lot of it comes down to the mindset of the individual and how that individual wants their life to be led and how much freedom they want outside of their racing and their commercial career. I guess some drivers are really good drivers and then every now and again, like Gerhard Berger, you have a driver who also happens to be a really good businessman as well and uh, they are able mm. to, to cope with that. But uh, fantastic insights into the inner workings of the world of motorsport from of course a lifetime in motorsport with richard west richard will be back on the next episode of the jaguar enthusiast club podcast but now someone who manages himself quite well actually uh, tom robinson from swallows independent jaguar with his motorsport diary involving an angry s-type on a rolling road all will be revealed next Listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. So we're now finished um, for the race season, and there's no more races on the calendar. So we've pretty much got the winter to prepare the car ready for next year. Now we've got quite a long list of modifications that we want to carry out. We're not going to take on anything too serious. We just really want to iron out some of the, I guess, small issues we've had this year with the car and, and try and improve as much as possible. So over the next couple of weeks, once we've started work on this, we'll, we'll talk through some of the improvements we've got planned. But over the last couple of weeks since Fruxton, um, we've actually been um, doing a build in the background um, in between races that we 
we did talk about earlier on in the podcast which is the Maguire's or Dale's Jaguar S type so this has been really great for us and it's been a bit of an interesting build um, we're obviously used to, to building cars for, for full track use but we've never really done anything for a kind of show based track car so it's been quite fun and I've actually really enjoyed it now the car's actually nearing completion and uh, Covid as, as always for everyone has caused quite a lot of delays and stuff so we've still luckily been managing to carry out progress with the car although it's been a little bit awkward filming um, with Maguire's etc because they haven't obviously been able to come to us in a workshop so um, we've been able to to lock the car away and carry on chipping away and we we managed to pick the car up from the body shop as you've probably seen in some of the episodes so we've been carrying out basically um, completion of the car since then so we've had to fit all the panels back up onto the car um, all of the bits that were removed for the bodywork and as I said all the paintwork's now done so we've got quite a long list of modifications that we're doing um, and this week we've actually had the car um, up on the dyno and is what we've actually done I can't list all of the modifications we've been doing but we've actually done something quite a serious upgrade to the car which will be announced over the next couple of weeks um, you can keep track of this on the YouTube channel and there will be some videos soon with this in there so it's quite exciting but some of the things we've been doing this week is um, we've actually fitted a standalone management system to the car now um, the reason we've done this is to support quite a lot of new modifications we've done to the car which you'll you'll understand later in the episodes and we'll explain through that in a bit more detail but um, as you've probably heard me talking about um, the race car the XJR6 we use a max ECU on that car and we've actually decided to install a very similar max ECU um, to the Maguire's car now the reason we've done this is the factory ECU does have a lot of limitations um, obviously OEM manufacturers don't want us to be able to tune these vehicles and they make it very awkward to do so and the car was obviously released in 2003 so it is quite dated compared to some of these modern management systems so is what we're trying to achieve is obviously we want to support the modifications we've done and we can't do that with the factory ECU so is what we've done is we've actually developed a plug-and-play kit for these which is going to be really exciting and we're hoping to get this launched for next year whereas you can literally unplug the OEM ECU and plug in uh, max ECU with a essentially a fly loom now is what this will then do is it will give us full control over the car so whatever modifications we do to this vehicle we can modify fuel timing and whatever we need to do um, very easily because it's it's full mappable and it's fully customizable as well so we can change a whole host of um, settings in that ECU to, to do exactly what we want to do with that car so we've been busy over the last week basically doing this and we're over with our friends over at PV Engineering, basically just running the car on a dyno and, and, and going through all the data and seeing what we can do with the car. And I have to say, it's been it's been pretty impressive. We've, we've had a couple of stumbling blocks, um, which you will see in some of the episodes and some of the videos if you want to watch that on the Maguire's YouTube channel. But one of the things we have um, unfortunately come up trumps with is as we've started um, pushing the power on the car, we've actually started to get into um, fueling limitations of the car so the standard s-type was obviously designed to run a certain amount of horsepower and they didn't plan to go any more than that so we are starting to find some of the limitations of that so um, one of the the things we've learned this week is um, for next week we're actually going to have to replace the fuel injectors on the car so we need a bigger fuel injector so um, we always like to run a safety net on the fuel injector so we always allow around 15% we never run a ball any more than 85% duty cycle and we are up at that 
that percentage already and we haven't done the full tune on the vehicle so um, that's actually really promising because it means we have increased performance drastically and we are now maxing out the fuel um, injectors on this vehicle so um, at the moment well we've actually started it um, today I've actually been removing the inlet manifolds uh, fitting new injectors to the car so they are actually uh, a 440cc injector in there from factory we've gone up to a 550cc Bosch injector so it all fits the same um, we're, we're gonna have to modify a lot of the tuning to allow for the different size injector um, but that will be going into uh, be finished up by the end of this week um, and then next week we'll then, then be able to tune it then hopefully over some of the next couple of episodes on the podcast I'll be able to talk about some of the really exciting modifications we've done to this car now um, the deadline for the car is is the end of the year so we're still full steam ahead to try and get this finished um, it will be at some of the JEC events so I'm really excited it's quite a quite a different build because it's obviously a modern S type um, but Dale's tried to make it look like um, kind of the iconic Mark Mark II race car and he's used some of the design cues that they used on the period cars and added it to a, a bit of a modern a modern look so it's, it's gonna be really exciting and uh, um, as you've seen on some of the other videos there's some really nice touches like some of the wheels that have been produced Bill Stein have, have done a, a cracking um, job with the suspension so I'm really excited to drive the car and set it up but we've still got a lot of work to do um, we'll keep you updated with the progress but I'm really excited to to show you what we've done with this event. you're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk well on this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast we're going to be talking XJ40s. They still remain one of the most affordable routes into Jaguar ownership and a superb Jaguar to own. And I know that XJ40s are the pride and joy of this man. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Paul Keating. Hiya Paul. Hi there Wayne, thank you for having me. Very good to have you on and it's great to see so many XJ40s coming to the fore now really and they are having their day aren't they as a classic car they are starting to have their moment in the sun more are coming out of the woodwork and people are starting to enjoy and save them which is the important thing well we're talking to you because you are the guy who runs the xj40 register facebook page and i know you've been working for some years now to put together a register of xj40s and the aim really i guess is to find out where all of the ones that still survive currently are so how did the project all begin well it was really by accident um it stemmed from one of my two xj40s i've got a, a 1994 four litre sport which is very closely registered to the last car ever built. Um, I've got M105 FVC, and the last car, which belongs to Heritage, is M94. So it just started with me trying to find out how close it was to that car, why it was so closely registered to it, but yet it was 9,000 units apart, and it just grew from there. And so you've got about this through social media. How has the list grown and how did you start? What was the first car on, I guess, yours? And then how, how did it grow from there? It was the honour uh, for first car was M105. Car number two was M94, the heritage car. And it just, for a month, it never really grew. I just looked at the M, the FVC batch, which included X300 Emotional cars, press cars, some XGSs, and it sat for about a month or two, and then it moved on to social media when I started to see people asking more about what happened to their old cars, their parents' cars, 
and then it accumulated more cars through that way that weren't related to FVCs. It's amazing that you recently put a post up just at the end of October that you'd reached the 100,000th XJ40 that you found. Complete record, really, of all of the cars that Jaguar had turned out and that are surviving or of, or unknown about on the records. 100,000 cars is amazing, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And in fact, today, this morning, I posted car 104,000, so it has grown. Um, but yeah, it's the only register of its kind. There are a lot of brands and models that have some incarnation of a register, but to my knowledge, there's not anybody that's taken on a project which includes two, nearly 209,000 cars. Um, and as I say, I'm now at a car 104,000 and growing. And they were quite a controversial car because, of course, they were a departure from the XJ6 design of old, weren't they? Gone were those curvy headlights and the usual XJ lines that people had become accustomed to. And here was a car that had, well, square headlights, if you had what we like to referred to as the fish tank headlights uh, and certainly square rear lights. That's quite a controversial subject depending on who you speak to but my firm belief is is that the XJ40 is the car that saved Jaguar. If it wasn't for the success of this car people wouldn't be enjoying their X350s and their XFs and what have you. Um, it came at an important time. The Jaguar needed to go in another direction. The Series 3 as beautiful it is was long in the tooth. The American market, which Jaguar still count on, needed something a bit different. XJ40 was a complete departure in technology and in styling. The angular styling is what I love about it, but it's not to everybody's taste. Um, fantastic development. Early cars that I've documented, uh, some of the first pre-production test cars go back to about 1982, 1983, before they were launched at Dunkeld in 1986, and the last car rolled off the production line on the, in June 1994. Um, so they had quite a good run, but they were what Jaguar needed, and as I say, they are the car that saved the brand as, as far as I'm concerned. They were a fantastic leap forward in technology for Jaguar, weren't they? Because you mentioned those early cars, and whilst we realised they had their problems, they really pioneered technology like LED dashboards and some of the modular electronics that were included in the car. Absolutely. The, it was a complete advancement over the Series 3. As the slate they get for reliability, what car doesn't have its problems, especially when you're going back to the 80s and cars that were developed in the very early 80s? My dad was one of the launch customers for one of the very first um, for sale cars for XJ40. And I remember him saying the digital dash was a complete nightmare, even when they were new. But it was something different. They were bold enough to take that step. And, you know, there are cars that are still floating about with the digital dashes. The problems have been tracked down. They can. There are people like David Marks that remedy these kind of problems, and you still see them today. So they can't be that bad if they're still in cars 34, 35 years on. Mm, absolutely. Well, it was a troubled time in the British motor industry as a whole, wasn't it? Because uh, Sir John Egan had just taken over as CEO of Jaguar. It had been extracted from the British Leyland empire really and this car was a long time in gestation it was it really came about in around 1971 1972 
when the early sketches were being developed. Then, of course, the 73 oil crisis hit. Everyone got twitchy about launching new cars, and they were really concentrating on making the high-efficiency engine versions of the models that they already had uh, in the lineup. And so it wasn't for another 10 years that this car would finally launch. And as you say, quite arguably the car that saved Jaguar. It was the car that took them out of the British Leyland era, and of course, the car now that we can look back on is probably the last proper, true British ownership Jaguar ever made, wasn't it? It was, yeah. The, the early cars were in the, the early ownership and then the later cars did transition over to the Ford. And you can see the differences in the model years where the changeover happened, different problems that arose. Uh, a lot of people say that the early cars aren't the best, but yet the later cars that people would argue are better failed in areas that the earlier cars never. So you can see the differences between the ownership and how they varied through the model years as they made changes and tried new things. Well, of course, they launched with two engines originally, the 2.9 litre and the 3.6 of that famous AJ6 inline straight-six engine. Um, they then later added the 3.2s and the 4-litre models like you own there as well. So uh, for prospective buyers looking at the different eras of XJ40, what would you recommend for a sort of virgin XJ40 owner? What would you recommend people look at, first of all? I would say look at a four-litre. They're, they're the most common survivor. Um, you still get occasionally people saying, what does the best mile per gallon and my better getting a 3.2? My answer to that would be, if you're looking at miles per gallon, you shouldn't be looking at a 30-year-old Jag for a start. <laughs> yeah. But when, when you look at it, there isn't much difference between the two of them. 3.2 is very, very common, but I would say go for the 4-litre because it's got that bit extra power. You're not sacrificing that much fuel economy, and you have the overdrive switch as well. 2.9s, they are very hard to come by now. They were unloved and uh, not really sought after, and that's reflected in their survival numbers. There are just not that many, um, but yeah, a 2.9 is a car that I crave, um, a 2.9 base, but... I would say to anybody, if they're looking at one, go for the four-litre. It's the best all-rounder and the strongest survivor. And a common question on XJ40s, Paul, that hopefully you can answer is, why do some have round headlights and others have square ones? <laughs> it's the difference in the specifications. The, the round headlights or the quads were most associated with the XJ6. And then when you moved up to Sovereign and Daimler, they were fitted with what is most formally known as styled headlights, but commonly known as the fish tanks, you now start to see a lot of, of the higher specs wearing quads because fish tanks had the, the problem of turning black over time with use and you can't re-chrome the interior. So if you ever do see a Daimler or a Sovereign fitted with quads, it's normally because um, they've turned black and people would argue that the, the light put out is slightly better on quads. Mm-hmm. Well, the XJ40 is responsible for one of my favourite stories from Jaguar history. And it was during the development of the XJ40 that, as I mentioned, it was part of British Leyland Jaguar at the time. And they'd considered all sorts of consolidations across the British Leyland group, one of which being that Jaguar really ought to have a V8 engine 
in their new saloon car and that that V8 engine should be the Rover V8, which should have eliminated all the needs for future investment into engine production uh, going into the uh, 1980s. Now, so put out were the uh, management at the time at Jaguar that they would dare suggest these British laden management that they put a Rover engine in a Jaguar that they purposefully built the XJ40 so that it couldn't ever be fitted in and that is a true story isn't it unfortunately it came back to bite them when they came to do the V12 version didn't it <laughs> Yeah, I've heard that story myself, and uh, yeah, I did, there was something along the lines of not having that in one of my cars um, from one of the, the late greats of the development there, but as you rightfully point out, the Jaguar the XG40 did have a bigger engine, um, the 6 liter. Um, which is also known as the XG81, but yeah, I've heard that story too. Well, they weren't to come until 1993, and that is why you see the Series 3 XJ6 in double six or v12 form running alongside the xj40 because that wasn't discontinued until 1992 before it was replaced by those v12 xj40s that had to be extensively redesigned and if you have a look in the engine bay of an xj40 from 93 with the v12 engine in it is quite a bit chopped about and different under there isn't it yeah, it's very busy under the bonnet of those, but you, you do make a very fair point. The Series 3 did continue on. Um, majority of the later cars were exported, but you are seeing more of them coming back from places like Japan. And it's not unusual to see one wearing an NT3 L-Reg plate um, because they are very, very late cars. But uh, yeah, underneath the bonnet of a, an XJ81 is a busy place. Absolutely. And um, do we know how many they built of XJ40 shape XJ6s over the period of uh, their lifespan? Because, I mean, 86 to 94, eight years there. Do we know how many they turned out? Um, yeah, taking into account the cars that were built prior to launch is 208,733. So quite a, a big whack. So that means you've got nearly 50% of them accounted for on your register, which is a phenomenal achievement. Mm, yeah, on Sunday I'm planning to publish the halfway car, so it's a milestone. Talk us through some of the real special XJ40s that you've discovered over the past few years in doing this project. Well, there's quite a few of them. Um, probably the, a special one to me is the last one ever built, which luckily still survives in the care of heritage um, car 708757 which is the last one ever built um, when you're coming down to a rare factor um, you might be aware that in the last year and a bit two years you could have an XJ40 in what was called an insignia not to be confused with a Vauxhall but insignia you could have the car in a whole host of different colours interior exterior and one car that came to light in New Zealand, of all places, was a Saturn orange Daimler 66 short wheelbase insignia. And the seller actually got in touch with me to ask if I wanted to buy it and reimport it, but it, it was a fortune. Um, and it was spending about 10 grand on a car that was unseen in a different country, and I just couldn't take that risk. Luckily, the car was bought and it was reimported to the UK. Um, and it's now based in London. It's a, a Russian guy that owns it, and he knows exactly what it is, and he's going to look after it. So that's probably the rarest XJ40 slash XJ81 that I know of, the only car of its colour. Um, 
other special cars, I suppose every owner would say that their car is special, but coming down to a, a mutual friend of ours, Rob, he's got a, a white pearl a Daimler Majestic insignia. Um, again, very, very rare car. So they are cropping up. Um, a peppermint insignia as well, owned by Tim Stoughton. So there are quite a lot of cars that come up. I've always been excited by the XJ40. I've owned them. I love them. And always found them, by the way, to be bulletproof on reliability. Absolutely tough cookies, these cars. They were quite rightly named, actually, by the Motor Impress when they were new, especially in the late 80s, early 90s, as being the safest car in the world, uh, or safest car in Britain, I think, Autocar called them, because of their fantastic safety record and reliability record at the time. And cars that came through the second-hand car market in the late 90s did literally starship mileages but it's all the little subtle things about the xj40 that they pioneered in that car that no one ever seems to give it credit for things like the famous j-gate transmission that appeared first in this car didn't it it did or also known as the randall handle um, relating to jim randall yeah they did and again a good point that you make is um, the longevity as well, the, the engines, the transmissions, they were very well-built cars. One of the cars that's on the register just now is currently um, abroad in Europe, but it's a daily driver and it's done over 400,000 miles. It was the bodies that let them down, corrosion, and people didn't want to spend the money on them, but technically, fantastic cars, and it was lost in later incarnations, but uh, no great cars that example there of the j-gate gearbox that would remain in place in the jaguar lineup right the way until the xf arrived in 2008 mm. you know i think it's testament to the model that actually you get those 400,000 mile cars 200,000 mile cars whatever because people did hang on to them that long because they loved them that much didn't they they did i mean that 400,000 mile car that that's owned by a man um, who inherited from his father. His father bought it brand new in 1990. And here we are, 30 years on, and the son's inherited it, using it, loving it, putting the money into it. And to look at it, you'd think it just came out of Brown's Lane. It's a lovely car. They've kept on top of it. So it just goes to show that if you are willing to put the love and the care into these cars, they won't let you down. And I think it's a detail that's often overlooked by quite a lot of people. Absolutely. Well, it also transformed the world of information to the driver and technology that connected the driver to the car. And Jaguar were one of the very early pioneers of this. And anyone who's owned an XJ40 will be familiar with the term VCM, the Vehicle mm. Condition Monitor. Uh, this was usually the voice of doom, to be honest. Uh, but uh, basically, what it is, is is a little button that would tell you of all the different errors that are, might be occurring in your car, from bulb failure to brake pad wear, unlatched boot doors and, and uh, open doors, uh, right the way through to more engine-focused things like low coolant, oil pressure, and, and things like that. We're used to seeing now onboard computers in cars telling us information about the car when we need to service it. But this was really something that Jaguar had pioneered in the XJ40. And again, something they probably don't get the credit that they deserve for. No, absolutely. I mean, when you think back to the vacuum fluorescent dashes, it would run through the sequence. It would give you everything right there, digestible information. And then when they moved on to the analog dashes, you still retained the VCM 
when I bought my car, it kept throwing up fuel fail, 44, a sensor was gone. You didn't get that in the older cars. If there was something going wrong, you were never really going to know about it um, until you got hit with a bill or it might never be discovered. But yeah, the XJ40 did bring in a lot of awareness features. Some people will curse them for that. But if you are concerned about keeping your car as good as it can be, this is where you need to know where the issues are, when they happen, so you can rectify them and prolong its life. Yeah, absolutely. A great car to own, honestly. They are having their day as a classic Jaguar now, and the best thing about them is they're still very, very affordable. Five, six grand buys you a really lovely XJ40. And those that were riddled with tin worm and other nasty problems, most of those have sadly disappeared, but that means the ones that are on the market, generally speaking, are pretty good. And um, we look back to 2006, Paul, and you're a native of Edinburgh, and uh, you're up there in mm. Scotland, which is a a key place in the XJ40 story, isn't it? Because, of course, not far down the road in Dunkeld was where that car was launched. Paul, I have to ask you about your own history with Jaguar then. Uh, you know, it takes some dedication, really, to see through this amassing of all this information on one particular Jaguar model. What started it for your obsession with Jaguar in the first place? It's a family thing, really. Um, I'm from a Jaguar family. I was born in December 1986, only a couple of months after XJ40 was launched. So as I grew up, so did they. And when I was born, my mum and dad had a Series 3 um, that's what I was brought home in, and my first ever photo was my dad holding me with that Series 3. But then when XJ40 started to come onto the market, um, and my dad purchased one, and he had four over the production run. So as I got older, I grew up with XJ40, went to school in them, holidays in them, played in them when I was young. So for me, they were a massive, massive part growing up. Weirdly... I never carried that on with X300 and 308. Never really bothered about them. XJ40 sort of stuck, and it goes back to one of your earlier questions. I really like the styling, the angular, eh, angularness of them. So they always have been an important car to me, but subsequent cars never really took over. It is the nostalgia, it's the looking back over fond memories of growing up or something that you aspired to. And um, I suppose for some people of different generations, it's quite surprising to hear us talk about the XJ40 in this way. And you and I are a similar age. We look at those cars as the aspirational Jaguars of when we were growing up in the same way that the E-types were for those that grew up in the 60s. And and to us, that is the car we wanted, isn't it? And, and finally, we were able to realise those dreams. Absolutely. I mean, every generation has a car that defines them. And when you go back to the older generations, you are looking at your E-types and you're looking at your Series 1s and 2s and what have you. For me, it is XJ40. And when it came to the time to think, mm, will I get one? There was a lot of opposition to it. Why would you want an old car like that when you're driving about and one that's got a warranty? And you can still have both. And you can still have an XG40 for not a lot of money. And despite what people say, they're not that bank-breaking to maintain. So, yeah, it's the aspiration of growing up with one and then thinking, yeah, I'm ready for one myself. And then 
as I've found out, I've ended up with two, but I'd have 50 if it wasn't for the storage problems. That's it. They get under your skin, these cars, and the problem is they are, as I've said before, very affordable, so you can buy lots of them. <laughs> A bit too affordable, yes, but um, they, are, they are very, very worth it. Talking about XJ40s, you and I, Paul, we've now convinced everyone to go and buy one, and you really should buy one because they're so affordable. You might as well just add one to your collection if you've got a Jaguar already. But when people are buying XJ40s and you turn up to view one, top tips, please. What should you look at straight away? Those kind of without saying, not just for Jag, but for any old cars. Don't be afraid to pull back the carpets and the footwells and have a look at what, what's underneath. If the seller is a proper Jag person, they'll know why you're doing it. It's to see if the floor's still there or how much water's collected in it. That's what kills a lot of them. Later cars, you have a look at the bulkheads because that's typically what killed most of the late ones. Early cars, history is key with these ones because of the faults with the digital dash and them getting replaced. There are Still quite a few cars we're dealing with one this week that is advertised as only having 20,000 miles. It's got about 220,000 miles. So do your checks that you would do with most cars of that age. History, corrosion, and given a good run from cold. The engines, the gearbox, I mean, I'm not a mechanical guy, but again, common sense, making sure there's no horrific sounds coming from the engines. If you hear banging from when you're driving, it's probably the bushes, but they all suffer that every few years. Don't let that put you off. So just have a bit of common sense with them and just enjoy it. Absolutely. And uh, a lot of the problems that you might come across are actually easily fixable. Things like they suffer a lot from hardened valve stem seals, and that gives you that puff of smoke that you'll see some of them suffering from on early startup. Basically, the oil leaks through into the cylinders. And you mentioned those bulkheads. They're a nightmare because there's a big wadge of sound-deadening foam in between two skins in the bulkhead, and that soaks water up like a sponge, and that can be a very costly exercise to replace. But those things aside, bulletproof cars, really, and a joy to own, and they still have, despite being modern in their outlook, I suppose you could say, they still have that classic Jaguar feel, and crucially the smell <laughs> about them as well. And uh, that, for oh, me, yes. is just is just it, really. You get into an XJ40, they are a Jaguar behind the wheel, aren't they? Absolutely. Um, they're everything that you're not getting in the cars of today. You get in, it's proper leather, surrounded in proper bar walnut. It's you can't beat them it's for what you get for the money you can't argue absolutely if you do buy one and you think it might not be on paul's register paul how do people get in touch with you and tell you about their cars yeah i do most of my work through facebook um, i'm still quite a while off from having a proper website i want to get a lot more cars on the register be a bit more advanced so i'm on www.facebook.com forward slash xj40 register um even if you're not a member of facebook you can still see the page and get in contact with with me it's not locked and um, so you can send me a message an email uh, it would be great to have the cars on every single car counts there's a good jaguar enthusiast club scene up in that part of the world isn't there there is i think we've got the best region we do all the events that we can um we've got fantastic events coordinators that make sure that we're involved in everything and most importantly we have a good laugh which 
you'll probably know because you've been out drinking with us. <laughs> um, but yeah, we don't take it too serious. We're not the stereotype car club. Um, we get on well, we have a good laugh and we enjoy the club scene. Well, as Car Magazine on the front cover of the November 1986 issue said, the best saloon car in the world is British. The best saloon car in the world is the Jaguar XJ40. Paul Keating, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Wayne. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.